0: Cool. All right, well, let me pray for us, and then we are going to talk about Psalm 1 and 2. We're really going to focus on Psalm 2, but I want to use 1 and 2 as the basis for how we're going to work through this. Um, and then we're going to just dive into the Psalter. yeah? Cool. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you uh, for the chance to be able to come and to open up um, poetry in the Old Testament. God, I pray that you would help us understand clearly what it is that you have written for our instruction. God, that we know that these words are inspired. Uh, We see that clearly even in Acts chapter 4. We see that you are the one who has knit together this collection of poetry, and you have superintended this process so that we have in front of us what we need. And so, Father, I pray that as we are venturing to understand what it is that you have given to us, um, that we would be able to have uh, clarity of thought, that you would give us your spirit to be able to help us understand what it is that you have given us, to us now. And so, Father, uh, I thank you for this time, and uh, we pray that your Spirit will be here with us as we endeavor to do this together. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Here's what we have up here. There are going to be times whenever I'm going to step aside from like the actual psalm, and we're going to take a step back and look at two or three psalms together that are meant to be read together. I believe Psalm 1 and 2 ultimately land right here, right? So just hold on to that. The reason why I think that is because the author of Psalm 1 and 2, which I believe is the same person, and even though it's not in the superscript, uh, superscript, which is the part that's above verse 1. So if you look in Psalm 3, if you read verse 1 in our English Bibles, it has, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? But there's that uh, all caps stuff above it. You see that? That's called the superscript, a psalm of David. It's ascribed to somebody. Even though these two are not uh, ascribed to David here, they are elsewhere. We'll talk about that in a bit. However, the way that these work together is there's a lot of words that link them together. In chapter one, or me, Psalm 1, verse 1, you read that there is uh, this statement of blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and the very end of Psalm 2 is that same exact word about being blessed. Those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked is then described in chapter uh, Psalm 2, 1 through 3 as how the peoples plot or meditate on vanity and wickedness. So 2, 1 through 3 describe what 1, 1 says. See what I'm saying? Go down to 1, 1, they don't walk in, or sit in the counsel of sinners and they don't walk in the way of sinners. A little bit later on, they perish in the way in Psalm 2, verse 1, okay? Are you seeing how these are connected? The last one we'll just hit on in uh, 1, 2. Let's just read it real quick. <clears throat> in Psalm 1, verse 2, uh, this person who is blessed, he doesn't sit in this, uh, this group of rabble-rousers. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The law there is the word Torah, Torah. The commandments, the instructions of God, how to live life. His delight is in God's law, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then that's contrasted in 2, 1 through 3 as what are the people meditating on? Something that's vanity. It's not the Word. Okay. So these two go together, and this is how I would describe Psalm 1. What it's doing is, in Psalm 1, it is categorically placing everyone, every single person, into two camps. There are those who are the wicked and those who are the righteous. You are going to see that theme over and over all throughout the Psalter. Okay? There's going to be this generalization of those who are walking in righteousness and those who are not. Those who are not are either called the wicked or the foolish, right? So, it tells us those are the two categories. Not only does it tell us those two categories, it also tells us how those people live, right? So, to, uh, uh, Psalm 1, verse 2 blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, he's like a tree planted by many waters, his roots grow deep, right? It tells us how they live and how they don't live. It's all wrapped up in metaphor and poetry but it is still teaching us, yeah? So Psalm 1 divides us all into two categories, shows us how we live, and it also tells us where our eternal destiny is. You can look there in verse 4. The wicked are not so, they're like chaff that is driven away by the wind. Chaff is that part of the wheat that whenever you're separating it, it's just the wind just takes it away and it's just immediate. And as soon as it starts happening, like it's gone. You can't get it back. Verse five, "Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, and the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So it, it tells us what categories we're in, what your lifestyle looks like when you're in that category, and where that's taken you. Makes sense? Then Psalm 2, what we're going to see tonight, is actually going to describe what these plots are. What does he mean by walking in the way of sinners and sitting with those guys and the counsel of the wicked? What does that look like? And it's going to be brought up as though there are these kings who are plotting against God's anointed. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. But what it's doing is now is showing us what those plots are and it's introducing for us the Messiah, the anointed, right? That's what the word is actually in, uh, in Hebrew, is the Messiah. And that Messiah is considered to be the Son of David, okay? Now, when I say the phrase Son of David, that should set some alarm bells off for you, right? Who should you be thinking of whenever you hear the words Son of David? Jesus, you eventually should hear. You absolutely should hear. In fact, whenever Jesus was healing Oh, man, I had it, and I looked at it earlier. Uh, was it was the blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me, right? Like, he calls him son of David. Why? Like, no one calls Jesus that in the Gospels except that dude. That's because I think that guy was anticipating what Psalm 2 is introducing for us, that there is this Messiah, and he is the son of David. Whenever you hear son of David, who else should you be thinking about hearing who else are the sons of David? Solomon. And who else? To take it a step further and much broader, before we get to us, it's all the kings of Israel, right? So if we go back to our little chart, I'll get you one, Millie, because we ran out. If you go back to your chart, you can see in book three and four, what, who are we focusing on? The line of David and their expressions of how their lives play out. You've got the sons of Korah have a lot of psalms that's in there, and that's what's going on. So this is my contention. Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to be read together, and they introduce the majority of our key themes that we are going to wrestle with for the rest of the book of Psalms, all 150 of them. Yeah? Is it always a neat, tidy line directly from one to the next? No, and I think that's fine. However, son of David, whenever we start seeing about the one who is uh, blessed— Like, there's this typology that we see David is the one fulfilling that, and then even David's children, but eventually to Jesus. But then that mantle, in some manner, is given to us as God's people. Sue, So we do eventually find ourselves with wisdom of how to live today. Yeah? We're tracking with that? How many of you have ever thought of the book of Psalms, the entire Psalter, as one knit-together, intentional work that works together? How many of us think of that book that way? How many of us have never even considered that Psalm 72 and Psalm 73 are directly connected on purpose between books 2 and 3? I would say for most of us, we didn't even consider it. It's It's just different poetry all scattered together, and some dude collected them, and we got 150 of them. My contention is that there is more structure. Sometimes that structure is really hard to see, and my goal is not to get us to see the structure. My goal is to get us to see the poetry and the meaning within each psalm and then when necessary take a step back but once we understand that meaning for us to pray it yeah so in those times whenever we find it beneficial to take a step back and look at this then that's what we'll do cool questions so far that is your introduction I'm not going to reference this again basically it might be one of those things like hey if you remember it go check it out here's where we are moving on okay Chad Yep, yes, yes, so the question is, if we have 150 psalms, and my contention is that they were organized, who organized them, because we do have psalms from Moses, there's at least two, I think, I know for a fact there's one, because it starts off in book four, Um, but then also there's psalms of David, there's the sons of Korah, there's later psalms, there's stuff that seems to be connected to Jeremiah, so I mean, like, where's this huge amount of time? my contention is david as the primary author of books one and two he sees himself fitting into the narrative of how god operates in his people and in their history and he is writing about his experiences in poetry form in poetic form it comes out as a psalm and as he is authoring this huge chunk right 55 of the 72 there is a later editor possibly nehemiah or ezra or both of them together where they are collecting these these venerated works that have been held on to for a long time by israel and they see and pick up on the pattern that david is intentionally organizing his stuff and there's themes that start to lay out and that's when they collect hey these first two books are all about david and then this third book is really about his sons and then we've got these questions about the covenant, and are we still going to maintain? And they put them together, right? So there is a later later editor, and if that makes it makes you uncomfortable to hear that there are later editors into uh, the story of Scripture, I would just turn your attention to Jeremiah 36, and there's this cat named Baruch, where Jeremiah sits down and they write down everything that God had told Jeremiah to that point. And you know what happens to that first edition? They write down, it gets burnt. So you know what they do before the end of the chapter? They write another one, and guess what they do? They add many more things to it, okay? So like, the Bible even tells you that there are editors putting this stuff together, and that's fine. If you wanna have a more more in-depth conversation about that, that's what I would do, yeah? So that's a good question, though, to say, well, Wood, you're saying this is all knit together. How do you know? One is through the language. There's connections between Psalms together. That go together intentionally, and once we see them, I think it's hard to unsee them. Landon, you got a question, my man? Yeah, as we will see, the question was: whenever you see in Psalm one one that there are these people that don't uh, that uh, have a council of the wicked, his question was: are there people who actually get together and? plot to overthrow good things? Yes. And my contention is in what we're going to look at tonight in two, one through three, there's going to be all sorts of things that works out there. So hold on to that. It's a good question. See, look at that. Landon's already putting the rest of y'all to shame. Okay. All right. So we, oh, we got another question. He's, he's getting ahead now. Why did the first one get burnt? Well, it's because uh, you're speaking about Jeremiah and Baruch and his scroll. Um, The king did not like Jeremiah. So uh, Jeremiah sends Baruch with the word of God to him. And the king was so angry and he didn't like what he read, they threw it in the fire, um, essentially. And so that's why they had to write another one. Yeah. So there's an example of someone who plots wickedness. This dude literally had the word of God handed to him and he threw it in the fire. I wouldn't call that righteousness. Yeah. All right, let's look at Psalm 2. I am reading from the ESV, um, and this may not be the most uh, poetic English coming out of here. That's okay. The fact that we have other translations are excellent. I'm in ESV. How many of y'all are in King James? Okay, We've got some King James. How many of y'all are in NIV? How many of y'all are in CSB? Uh, what else we got? New King James. New King James. Somebody else? Amplified. NASB. Well, hey, man, you're, God love you. New yeah. living. <laughs> New living. Okay, cool. So here's the point. If I say a word and you're like, that's not what mine says, great. That's even better. Like, seriously, that gives us more material to draw from to help stoke our mind because poetry is meant to be evocative. If you read this and you're just dead inside, let's just ask the Lord to, like, enliven your heart to understand what he's saying to us. Yeah? All right, let's pick it up in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and why do people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Your translation may not have anointed. It may very well have Messiah. Messiah. That's who we're talking about. And who is the Messiah? Ah, hold on to that question. Who is the Messiah? We'll talk about that. Against the Lord and his, against his anointed or Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, and the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with the rod of iron, and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, Now, therefore, O kings... You guys from verse 1, listen up. You kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right. This is where we pause. We've now read it. If you have immediate questions about the whole psalm as it fits together, we'll just kind of take those. If we're going to hit it as we start breaking down each section, then I'll say, hey, hold on to that. We'll answer it here in a moment. Major questions about the whole psalm. Psalm 2, anything spring to mind before we start detailing little by little? Anything stick out to you? Good, bad, or indifferent? Bad as in like I don't understand, or indifferent, I don't get it, but I think I do, or good like, hey, I heard that and this sticks out to me and I want to share it with you. What stands out to you, good, bad, or indifferent? Chad, you got something? I just think the relevance of Scripture stands out. The relevance of Scripture stands out. Yeah, the few here and they're, I mean, that's, that's just right out of our world today. Yeah. So the first couple of verses, we got to kind of translate it into today's meaning. But this is what we see going on around us, yes? And it gets a little more precise the more we talk about it and as we relate it to Psalm 1 here in a bit. So hold on to some of that, yep? Yeah? Other observations in general? Or questions? John? Well, in uh, 10 of uh, the wise, Lord Yeah. And he wasn't, I mean, this was directed at the non- There it is. Yes, this is directed at those who are plotting and meditating vanity, right? And the direction to them is, hey, you should seek wisdom. Be wise. Serve the Lord. Yes? But then it continues with, serve the Lord with fear. With fear. You look at that fear. But then rejoice. And rejoice. Did that not strike anybody as weird? Like, what do you mean serve the Lord with fear and trembling and rejoice at the same time? What? I would say if you are serving God with fear, that is a rejoicing situation to be in. Yep, I like it. If you are serving with fear, and to put that in my words, if you're serving the Lord rightly and you rightly understand who he is, A natural byproduct of that or a natural uh, recognition would be that God is over and above you. And that means that you should fear him in a good way. Yeah. Worshipful Worshipful. man. Man. Reverent Reverent fear. Rejoice Rejoice with trembling. So you see how this is starting to become multifaceted already just from different translations. And by the way, I am not knocking any one translation or upholding one over the other because I think we need a, a, like multiple options to take stabs at here because it speaks to us differently. Landon, what else you got, my man? I have, my I have installed my king on Zion, yes, sir. Where is that? That is where the temple will be, okay? And that's where the temple is in Jerusalem. And so the king is there But the question becomes, well, who's that king? Right? And it's the same thing. It's like, oh, well, they're coming up against the anointed. Okay, is that the same guy? Is that a different guy? We'll talk about that in a second. Okay? All right. So here's what we're going to do. Any other questions, comments? All right. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take Psalm 2 into these four chunks, three verses each. And we're going to look at each one of those kind of in turn. I've got some Hebrew that I'm gonna throw at you, and I've got some other verses we're gonna read to help us understand some of this stuff. But here's the point. What we are driving at is this right here. We are gonna generate at least two or three things that we are going to pray tonight that is going to mirror the theme, the content, the tone of Psalm 2. I'm trying to teach us how to pray through Scripture. Use the language the Bible uses. It's okay to plagiarize God when it comes to talking to God. Totally cool, right? That, I think he is incredibly fond of that. Yeah? All right, so here's what I want to say. In verses 2, 1 through 3, What we see going on there is that the nations are conspiring together. This is what Chad's comment was. This is where I'm saying this is the explanation of what sitting in the council of the wicked and the seat of scoffers. This is what's going on in that council at the seat of those scoffers. They are conspiring together. And the question is, who are they conspiring against? And the answer is. Can't see it up there in blue because it's a little bit smaller. It's in your Bible, it's the anointed. Now, I asked who that anointed is, and the answer immediately was whom? The Messiah. And the answer of who is the Messiah is? No, not Jesus. Or not. I don't know. This is the whole point. To take that word of what it means to be anointed or to be the Messiah, the Messiah just means the one who is anointed. Who in the Bible? gets anointed with oil in the Old Testament. Let's keep it there. Priests and who else? The kings, all the kings, they get anointed. Now, flash forward to the New Testament and who do we see getting anointed? The priest and our king, Jesus, right? So Jesus is fulfilling that role. He's also a prophet who you know, has the authority to do those types of things or allow it. But here's my point. When we've put Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 together, remember, this is categorically introducing the entire Psalter. I don't think it is improper for us to read Jesus into this. However, let's take a little bit of a, a slowdown and let's look at who wrote this in the beginning. Do you have a superscription or, uh, or a uh, what's attributing phrase at the beginning of Psalm 2? Do you have that? Anonymous. Anonymous. What if I told you it's not anonymous? I need somebody to go to Acts chapter 4, verse 25 for me. Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. What's going on in Acts chapter 4 is Peter is giving him a big old sermon. You know what sermon that is? What sermon is it? In Acts chapter 4? again. So if you look at your headings there, Acts chapter 2, you have Pentecost. 3, you've got uh, Peter and John heal this dude. That gets them thrown in the clink. And in chapter 4, who are they in front of? The same dudes who killed Jesus. And what does Peter say starting in verse 25 through 28? Somebody read that whole section for me out loud. All right, somebody with a big, strong voice. 20, 25, through 25 through 28. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together, against the Lord and against his anointing. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Aaron and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever in your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who does Peter say wrote this line about why do the Gentiles, that word in Greek is ethnos, that's where we get the word ethnicity or nationality, that's where it comes from, the nations, To translate it from Greek to Hebrew, why do the nations rage? Who does Peter say wrote that? David. Our father, David. And my contention is Psalm 1 and 2 were written by the same guy, and it's in Book 1, which would mean David wrote Psalms 1 and 2. He has introduced the Psalter. He has set the pattern a later editor recognizes the pattern and they start adding to the collection and following that same pattern. Yeah, are you dragging with that? So what's going on there is Peter is saying, hey, David was inspired by the Holy Spirit and he wrote, why do the nations rage? Why are they coming up against the anointed? And who did he call him? Who was the anointed in Acts 4, according to Peter? Who does he equate him with? Somebody be brave. Look over there in 26. Is it 26 or 27? 27. There in 27. Just read it again for us. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Mm -hmm. Jesus. The holy servant, Jesus. Those are the ones they are gathering against. That's the same language from Psalm 2, right? Eventually we do get to Jesus. But we've got some stuff complexity that we got to work through there in uh, verses seven, eight, and nine. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so let's take a pause. In this uh, psalm, uh, whenever the nations are anoint—excuse me—conspiring uh, against the anointed, they are working out wickedness. If you go back to Psalm one, the word for the the, the way that the blessed man lives is someone who studies God's instruction, the Torah. And these people are not doing that. They are studying plans to uproot God's plan, essentially, right? So we can already put categorically these guys, as they are conspiring against the Lord's anointed, they are using something other than God's word to do that. And do you think they would be in agreement or in opposition of God's word at that point? In opposition. So can you think of, in any way, a way to pray based off of Psalm 2, 1 through 3 for us tonight? Connect that to God's word, opposition, agreement. Chad? You see how we get to this point? We can pray, God, give us the right motives as we are going about our lives and that we would not be those who conspire against your anointed and your word, but rather that we would have the right motives and that we would rightly adhere to what God says. You see how we got there from just three verses in Psalm 1 through 3? And I think we can use some of that language, yeah? All right. Let's move on. Anything else from verses 1, 2, and 3 that we want to see? Anything else sticks out to you? Sue, yes, ma'am. Verse 3, this translation says, Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from the slavery, which Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's to make the comment precise. They as they are conspiring against the Lord and his anointed and his word, they say to each other, "Let us conspire to break those chains that hold them together and separate them from us." What would be the thing that separates those who are wicked from those who are righteous? It is, in fact, I think in part a reference to right motives. Righteous living, God's word. They are necessarily opposed to what makes us distinct. Yes. So to that point, Sue, that you're saying, like, so how do we pray? Well, God, help us stay in the word. Let us not be broken apart by the thing that holds us together, which is God's word. Yeah. I don't think that that is at all us making a huge leap to get to this point. I think that's, I think that's the point. Yeah. That's good. All right. Speaking of verse four. He who sits in heaven laughs. Who is that that sits in heaven? That's God the Father. He's sitting up there and he laughs. Your translation may not say laugh. It may say mocks. Does anyone have another translation other than laugh? Scoffs. He's like, this isn't going to work, fellas. Why is it not going to work? What does verse 5 say? He's going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. And how is he going to terrify them? I've already set my king in Zion. It's a done deal, fellas. I have already set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Incidentally, the word that gets used there for terrify there in 2.5, that is the word Behal. The first time that word gets used is when Joseph encounters his brother and reveals to them that it's him. Do you know what their natural reaction was? Terror. They thought they were about to die because the king, essentially, Joseph, number two in all of Egypt, had just revealed himself, you guys wronged me. You thought I was dead, and here I am, and I can do whatever I like with you. And they almost passed out out of fear. So we already see David reaching back to the story of Israel and how God has operated in the past, and he is starting to re. Um, Not reimagine, but he's starting to recast that same history and using some of that language to bring us to this point of saying this is what God has already done. He has set his king on his holy hill. Okay? The question is, who is that king? Jesus? There's also another pretty immediate answer we should know based off of Acts 4. Who else is that king? David. David. And if we take David as understanding that he fits into this history, he has a promise from Second Samuel chapter seven verses twelve through fourteen. Somebody, turn that turn there to me uh, for me. Second Samuel chapter seven, starting in verse twelve. Do you know what David gets from this cat named Nathan? He gets a promise that says, "Hey, you know what? There's going to be a king who's going to come from your line forever." Okay. Somebody read Second Samuel seven twelve for me. Twelve through fourteen. Go ahead, Sue. For when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house and temple for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will use other nations to punish him. Through how far? 14. Should be it, yeah. So there's a couple of promises there. One, <coughs> when you die, because you will. I'm going to raise up another king from your line, his throne's never going to end. He's going to build the temple and he is going to distribute God's goodness across the world through the way the temple is meant to draw people in. And but if he fails, there will be those who will come and call him to the carpet. Yeah? Are right, you seeing how that works? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, what we see in this section is in verses 1 through 3, the nations are conspiring against the anointed. But what does God say? hey, I am not gonna have my plan thwarted. He responds by saying, there is already judgment on the way. My king is already on the ground, David, and even if he fails, because he will, there's gonna be another one. And if that guy fails, guess what? There's gonna be another one. And eventually, we will get to the king, which is whom? Jesus. David had that word from Nathan in his pocket, and he writes it down, and now we can say, oh yeah, that's why God's laughing. Plan all you want, fellas. It ain't going to work. My king is already set on the holy hill, and by the way, why is the hill holy? What's on that hill? The temple. But is it yet? Did David build the temple? No. Solomon did. But yet David is writing as though it's already a fait accompli, a thing already done. It's accomplished already. That's why God mocks and scoffs. It ain't going to happen. You cannot thwart his plans. Yes? So let just pause right there. When you look at verses 4, 5, and 6, is there any way that we can pray to ask God to help us in some way that would be mirroring the tone of verses 4, 5, and 6? Got to get used to this pattern because it's going to happen every time. If verses 4, 5, and 6 are about how God responds saying that there is already an instrument of judgment and grace available and it's already set, how do we pray mirroring that tone? Let's think about Thanksgiving. If we just were to thank God for some aspect of who he is, what is one aspect of God that stands out to you in verses 4, 5, and 6? God's in control. So how about How about we thank God for his sovereignty? We thank him for the fact that he's in control. That is mirroring the language, or excuse me, the tone and the content of this. And how would we do that? By example, Father, I thank you that you have set your king on your holy hill in Zion. And when I've done that, I am not just using those words. I am invoking the meaning of Psalm 2, verse 6. You ever wonder why Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes one line And he's implying the rest. He is bringing to bear the weight of Psalm 22 from the cross. He's using scripture in his prayer. Yeah. So let's do the same thing. Cool. Right. Verses one through three, the nations are conspiring against the king, the anointed. God then responds and he says, I've got an instrument of grace and judgment already there. And then verses seven through nine, we see the king is now going to proclaim what God just said. Because remember, verses 4, 5, and 6 is the one in heaven laughing. That's the Father. And then look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. What does Acts 4 tell us about who wrote Psalm 2? David. So who is I in Psalm 2, verse 7? David. And if we take a larger view, it's David and Solomon and Jeroboam and Rehoboam and that kerfuffle that happens. And then all these other kings out of the Davidic line who come out of that, they are all announcing, I will say, because they are picking up the language of 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, okay? So the Davidic line, this is what they say, verse 7. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, the Father, right? That's verse 7, that's the word Yahweh, that's God the Father. He told me, some dude, David. The Lord has told me, you are my son. And that's where we say, no, that can't be David. That has to be Jesus. Not if you're understanding that David is seeing himself as part of this uh, redemptive history, that the ark of salvation takes a while to get there. But we eventually get to Jesus, and David is in Jesus' line, right? So you can see that's where he's saying, My son, you are my son. That's where Peter's picking this up, right? The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. All those folks who are plotting against you, I'll bring them in. In fact, I'll smash them like a rod of iron against pottery. Incidentally, whenever you look at uh, Psalm 2, verse 9, that word for Ron is Shavet. That's the same word for scepter. And the first time that word gets used is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, whenever Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob is pronouncing blessing over all of his children, and he says, hey, there's going to be a scepter, and it's never going to depart from whom? Judah. That's the second connection we've seen between Israel's history and David reflecting on it and putting it into song for us. You seeing that? He's wanting us to see that there's a larger narrative going on. So what's happening there is the king is saying, hey, God's already put his king on the throne in Zion. The temple is there. There is grace because the temple, and there's also judgment, the rod of honor, the Shavet. He has what is necessary to bring about judgment. And he is proclaiming that as the king. Does that make sense? Questions about that next section of verses 7 through 9? We're going to run out of time to pray if I don't blitz through it. Are y'all seeing those connections, though? Like, this isn't me just making this stuff up. Like, I, I think this is how it all works together. All right, verses 10 through 12. We then have that the rulers are now warned. Those kings who were conspiring together against the anointed, against the king, against David and his line all the way to Jesus and what holds them together with the word of God. The rulers are now warned, and they are warned... One, to reject wickedness. Go back to Psalm 1, you'll find out about that. And they are warned that they need to now welcome wisdom. How are you gonna live rightly? Go to Torah. Go to the word that God has shown you of how life is meant to be lived. Hold fast to that. Let's read it one more time. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Don't do what you were doing. He's got a rod of iron and you are a pot. How many times have you ever seen a clay pot break a metal rod? Ever? Because it doesn't happen. They are pottery. He has a rod of iron, a scepter that will smash everything. What hope does that pottery have? None hope. He's got no hope. They will get smashed, right? So he says, Be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Now we come to John's comments. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And what did they say? What are they supposed to do? What does verse 12 say? Nashach, kiss the son. Incidentally, how is Joseph and his brothers reconciled in Genesis chapter 45, verse 15? After he scares the daylights out of them, what does he do? He kisses them. Incidentally, How is Jesus betrayed? You can see in the same action, there can be wickedness and there can be righteousness. Let us pray for right motives in what we're doing, why we are doing these things. This reconciliation comes about whenever they recognize who the king is, who the son is. And now we see the son can take on a couple of different meanings, does it not? David wrote this, but he said back in verse 7, today you are my son. Who could that possibly be? Could be Solomon. Could be any other king from the Davidic line. But yes, ultimately, who are we talking about? Jesus. This points to Jesus. Like I want to be very clear. This is pointing to Jesus. But there's also something more that if we just skip right over it and go straight to Jesus, we're missing a lot of the weight of this song. So what it psalmist says, what David says is, be reconciled to God, live in wisdom, come serve him. That word for serve also means to worship, right? Come serve him, cast off wickedness and foolishness, come to him because that king that's set in Zion, he is ready for judgment, but also grace. And he will bring the nations in, he will. That's what the story of Acts 4 and the rest of Acts is telling us, is that that's God gathering his people in, and it's going global. Yeah? Let's pause right there. Just looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. Can you think of something that we should be praying that can mirror the content or the tone or the theme of this song? Pray for wisdom. Why, like, you see how easy of a connection that is? Like, just pray for wisdom, right? What else? Pray for the rulers or the kings of the world to wake up. Jesus tells us in John 17, I have given you my word. And the world is going to hate you because you have it because the world stands in opposition to God's word. Their word that held them together in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, the bonds that hold us together as those who follow after the Lord is the word, the instructions, the law, the Torah. Like you see that they are opposed to this. So how about we pray for those who have influence that they would see truth and respond to grace? Like, this is not a, a crazy, outrageous leap. That's us looking in Psalm 2. And Let's just pause there for a second. How many of y'all are super familiar with Psalm 2? How many of y'all are familiar with Psalm 23? And if you're more familiar with that language, don't you think there's a little more depth there? Can you imagine how more vibrant your prayer life is whenever you're using those words that already are stirring something up in you to pray the content and the theme and the tone of that psalm? That's how the book of Psalms works. Okay, so let me just pause right there. Any questions about what we have going on here in Psalm 2? Yes, sir. This right there, why is that? That's a theta, that's just a letter. Theos is the Greek word for God, and so it's just an abbreviation for God. Good question, because you're right, that ain't English. And that ain't, and there's a whole lot of not English up there, yeah? Theta is just shorthand for God, for theos. Other questions? Sue, yes ma'am? It's not a question, a comment. Questions, comments, whatever. I'm open to all of it. This, this particular translation ends the song with saying, what joy for all who find protection in him. What joy or blessed is the man who take refuge in him. Okay, finish the comment. Yes. And yours is joy is the word, yeah? Yeah. And so you're saying he, when he knows our heart, he will give us comfort. That's the him. Who is he specifically? All right. It could could be one of two possibilities. It's either God the Father, the one who sits in heaven and laughs, verse 4, or it could be someone from the Davidic line who is like David, Solomon, the whole rest, until we get to Jesus, right? And here's what I want you to see typologically, typologically, the way that those Davidic kings, they are meant to stand in as like a forerunner of Jesus. They're supposed to prefigure who he's supposed to be, but they all fail. They're supposed to do that, but they fail, right? David was the closest we got, and he messed up, you know, pretty badly, right? But we have to have Jesus for that reason. Our only hope is with a holy man, right? So the hymn in its immediate context could be the king and what he's supposed to represent, but what we also know is that that line eventually ends and, and culminates in Jesus. He's the one who has the scepter from Judah in 49, 10. Page. Well, and I feel like his wrath can flare up in a moment within verse 12, yes. It is terrifying. Where do we see an idea of something suddenly springing on the wicked in Psalm 1? Here's a hint. Look in verse 4. Read verse 4 for me real quick, page of Psalm 1. And when God shows up and he decides to judge the wicked, it's like wind blowing chaff away. Right? How many of y'all have moaned in the last, like, day or two when it hadn't rained enough? And like you run over a little dirt patch. Yeah, like go try to gather that dirt up real quick. How good are you going to be at doing that? You're not. It's just going to get blown and like it's a done deal at that point. The way that the wind scatters this chaff, it just seemingly comes out of nowhere and it's just it's over. That's the exact same imagery that's being used in verse 12 when it says his wrath is quickly kindled. It comes and rushes upon you. Yeah. Not the way, How do you defend that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, people would take that as sins. You know, like, sin yep. but, like if, you know, like, bad things happen to you know, hmm yeah. So, to phrase the question like, succinctly, if someone wanted to twist Psalm 2 verse 12 to say that God's judgment just flares up out of nowhere, one, I think they're misconstruing the language, but I do agree. Like, I, I wouldn't try to defend it I would try to rightly put it in his context. God's judgment does, his wrath does flare up at iniquity, at wickedness. However, in context of what's going on here, the Lord is responding to our efforts in wickedness with placing the king in Zion and the temple. That is grace. That is grace. There is a means by which you can be made right. And who came up with those means? It wasn't you. It was God. He is gracious. He is good. He is, in fact, sovereign. Right? However, don't make a mistake. That same king who emplaces that will, in fact, judge. He has a rod of iron. He has a chavette in his hand. And he will use it. We know that. You know how I know he will use it? Because he used it on his own son. He does punish wickedness. Jesus takes our sin and is in fact the one who is the sacrificial uh, the, the substitutionary sacrifice for us that is judgment however it is also the only way in which grace is extended to any of us so i wouldn't try to like defend it or soften it i would actually lean into it so yeah your your ideas of god judging you haven't gone far enough but in the same same vein you also haven't considered how gracious he is to provide a way for you to escape that very judgment yeah and i think that's why we do have to read the whole psalm together and in this instance psalm one and two give us a better picture as well yeah it's a good comment landon did you have something else yes sir speak up loud so we can all hear you. i'll hear you Does it not, okay, so in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it doesn't have any of the stories of David and his sin. Well, I would say that Psalm 23, which is there, the good shepherd, uh, and I am his little lamb. That's in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, Psalm 23, I think, is a reflection and is also something that comes about after his sin with Bathsheba. I would say that I would place that that chronologically after he had murdered a cat named Uriah and committed adultery with, at a minimum, what I assume to be non-consensual relations with Bathsheba. So that story's in there. Yep. Paul, yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of weird. Whenever you look at the first two books of the Psalter, which is where we get the Psalms of David, um, the question was, do we have a good chronology of where Psalms one and two fit? I don't, I don't think we do. However, when we look at Psalms one and two, let's just flip it over here. Psalms one and two are categorically laying out people who are wicked, And then Psalm 2 tells us the plots of the wicked. And we say, oh, those are the kings. And we think immediately, oh, it's those people who plot against God's people. Cool? Who is Psalm 3 about? Read the superscript in Psalm 3. Tell us where the Psalter then leads us. We're thinking about kings. We're thinking about those who are wicked. And who's the one that's our first example? Absalom. Who is Absalom? David's son. The calls coming from inside the house all along, right? The wickedness was already there. It's anyone who opposes God's anointed. And even Absalom, in David's line, he messes it up. Like that's where, that's where Solomon comes into the fray eventually is because of what happens in, um, with Absalom, right? So here's my point. In the first two books of the Psalter, it seems as though we start with Absalom and then we work backwards to eventually we get to Saul and David in his early life. It's almost like it's a reverse chronology of David's life. And that would mean, if I'm accurate, and I'm, this is a very broad stroke, Paul, that would mean that Psalms 1 and 2 would have to be pretty late in David's life to then fit this scheme of reverse chronology. And that would actually make sense if he is using them to set and establish the themes of the entire psalter. That he would do that after he had written a couple, right? Paige. Nope. That's all the hand kind of. And that's fine. This is this is the beauty of the psalms they can be as deep as you need them to be because they are poetic and they speak to you. They speak to you in different ways. My contention is there is more there. And my, my goal is not to flood us with it. My goal is to bring us back to something incredibly practical. How then do we respond? We're going to pray. And you don't have to have All this last 45 minutes of us talking about Psalms 1 and 2 to be able to say, God, I pray that you would give me the right motives in living out my life. God, I pray and I thank you that you are the one who is in control and that your king is on your holy hill. Thank you for the fact that you give us wisdom. And James 1.5 says that any of us are lacking wisdom, we can pray and he will give it to us single-mindedly. Hoplos is the word. He gives it to you with singular devotion. He will give you all the wisdom you need. Thank him for that. Pray for it. And then to be able to say, God, those who are conspiring and not living up to your word, God, we pray that they would come and experience grace and they would turn from their wicked ways. So you don't, you don't even have to have all that other stuff to get to this point. And if that's where we're treading water for now, let's tread water there and let's get comfortable with it and let's push out a little further. And then push out a little further. Right? That's just the pattern we're going to have for the whole summer. Yeah? I am glad that you've said that because I think you, what you're feeling, I think a lot of us might actually already be experiencing as well, we just didn't say it. You're among friends. (laughs) You are among friends. All right, so this is what we're gonna do. You heard me at least two times now run through every one of those about a way we can pray. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask John to start us off in prayer. And John, you pray whatever it is you want. If it fits in these exact themes, rock on. If it's a little bit outside of it, rock on. If it's only one of them, don't care. Pray something, right? And then John, when you feel like you've said what you needed to, using the Psalms words or not, then just be quiet and someone else will go. And we will do that until I close this out in prayer. Yeah? If every single one of us pray, fantastic. And if that means we're here for another 45 minutes, then I don't think it's time wasted. If we're here for five, excellent. Then we have prayed together. Yeah? So we're not going to stress about this. This is not going to be the thing that's going to, like, make or break our study. But this is where we put into practice the whole point of what we're working towards. You've got some themes up there that you can look at. And if your eyesight is uh, failing you, come on up here, my man, and I, can, I'll, I can't write it any bigger. You've got to sit up closer, yeah? Next week we'll probably do four wide, so we're not going so far back, yeah? Are you all cool on how we're going to pray? If you feel compelled, start praying, and if you walk over somebody, just walk over them, keep praying, one of you will stop, it'll be fine. Okay, the place ain't gonna collapse. John, open us up, and then I'll close us out. Father, I thank you for the fact that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, and we read that from our brother Peter who is the one who is proclaimed um, in Acts chapter 4 that uh, your son David, being filled with the Spirit, declared these things that we have spoken about tonight in Psalm 2. And God, I thank you that you have given us what we need for instruction in life and how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called, and that we have what is necessary, God, that we have the right motivations and we have the right impetus to recognize that you are the one who holds judgment in your hand, but also you are the one who holds grace in your hand, and that comes through your anointed, your king, our king, Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would be the ones who would be mindful of how that balance is struck and that is difficult to explain to some people who are opposed to what we believe. But Father, you have told us even in Psalm 2 that there is a way in which we can live with wisdom having once been those who are opposed to you. And so God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to be able to speak that word to those who desperately need to hear about the grace of our Lord and King Jesus. Father, we thank you for tonight. I pray that this sets a pattern for us this summer and changes how we read the Psalms. I pray that you would use your spirit to drive down in our hearts what it means to pray these words that were given to us through your spirit and through biblical human men um, in this uh, real world that we inhabit. That God, that we would do this for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So that's the pattern. Next week, we're in Psalm 16 in here. Uh, I will do better. We will go quicker because they all have understood the pattern. We won't have to do all this stuff again. Um, so Psalm 16 next week, the week after Anthony will be in uh, Psalm 19 because that's when I'll be on vacation. Uh, I am preaching this Sunday morning and Sunday night. There's no service because of uh, Memorial Day. So in case you get the word, there it is.